Turn please to Ezekiel in chapter 37. Ezekiel in chapter 37. I want to read verses 1 through 14. Ezekiel chapter 37. Hear the word of God. The hand of the Lord was upon me, and he brought me out in the spirits of the Lord, and set me down in the middle of the valley, and it was full of bones. And he led me around among them, and behold, there were very many on the surface of the valley, and behold, they were very dry. And he said to me, Son of man, can these bones live? And I answered, O Lord God, you know. Then he said to me, Prophesy over these bones and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, Behold, I will cause breath to enter you, and you shall live, and I will lay sinews upon you, and and will cause flesh to come over you, and to cover you with skin, and put breath in you, and you shall live, and you shall know that I am the Lord. So I prophesied as I was commanded. And as I prophesied, there was a sound, and behold, a rattling. And the bones came together, bone to its bone. And I looked, and behold, there were sinews on them, and flesh had come upon them, and skin had covered them. But there was no breath in them. Then he said to me, prophesy to the breath, prophesy, son of man, and say to the breath, thus says the Lord God, come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain, that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and the breath came into them. And they lived and stood on their feet, an exceedingly great army. And then he said to me, Son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. Behold, they say, our bones are dried up and our hope is lost. We are clean cut off. Therefore prophesy and say to them, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people, and I will bring you into the land of Israel. And you shall know that I am the Lord when I open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people. And I will put my spirit within you and you shall live and I will place you in your own land. Then you shall know that I am the Lord. I have spoken, I will do it, declares the Lord. Now I trust, as we've been going through Ezekiel, and most especially the last couple of weeks, that you're being able to follow the storyline of the scripture. And by storyline, I don't mean story in the sense of bedtime story or some myth. But this historical narrative, this story that, that moves us from creation all the way to the consummation. And we've said that there's a unity in this revelation and that it all sticks together. But also, it's progressive in the sense that by the time we get to the book of Revelation, you understand, at least if you understand the book of Revelation like I do, uh, you understand much more than you do in Genesis or even in the Gospels. You, You see it all the way through from beginning to end. And it's unified, but yet also progressive. Another way of saying this is to simply suggest that there is a history of redemption. That is, when God redeems, when God buys back, when God makes people his own, it's in the context of history and we see it flow through history, this history of redemption. For instance, have you ever asked the question, why am I here? Not why are you sitting there? We know why you're here, here. But, but in, the, in the broader sense, I know I'm getting a little 60s on you, but, but why am I here? What, what's the purpose for which we exist. Every once in a while, I just look around and it seems really strange to me that we're here. Just people on this one planet Earth. And they wonder, why? Uh, that's entertained large numbers of 
people, groups of people, scientists, uh, certainly psychologists, sociologists. But it's certainly the purview of the theologian. Because as we come to the scripture, we realize that we're here because there is an intentional purpose for our being here. There's a being who's powerful, who's God. And he's the one who purposed in his own mind that we would be here for the purpose of glorifying him, for the purpose of imaging him, for the purpose of reflecting him, that he is so great that he is able then to create everything that can reflect him and us most specifically. That our calling, the highest calling a creature can have, is to reflect God, to love as he loves so that we can love him with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love others. That's the way God is, and, and we're to be like that. And that's the purpose for which we're here, to glorify God. But as we read through this progressive revelation in the scriptures, as God reveals himself and reveals this history, this plan of redemption in the pages of scripture, we don't have to get very far until we get to Genesis chapter 3, and you know what happens? That the human beings that God created, Adam and Eve, Sin against him. They, 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 they make themselves out to be God. For God set up this probation and he said you shouldn't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And as we said before, there's nothing wrong with that particular fruit. The point was whether they would obey or not. Because God is the only one who gets to define what is good and what is evil. Uh, that's, that's the job description of God. One of them. And yet when they ate from this tree, they disobeyed him and they said, no, 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 we're going to define what is good and what is evil. We're going to promote ourselves to be, to be God. And of course when that happened, they were banished from the garden, you remember. They were sent out of his presence. The very life that they were to have inside that garden of Eden, the very life they were to experience in the presence of God under his blessing and protection and provision and all of that, they were banished. They were sent out. And things went from bad to worse. Murder happened very quickly, even in the context of this first family. Cruelty and injustice took place when this ancient king, Lamech, killed a man for simply wounding him, the Bible says. People were so stuck on themselves that they built a tower to their own name, not to the name of God, not to the glory of God, but to their own name so that they would be known. And God had to, to smash that all down and separate all the people and scatter them abroad and so forth and so on. But then all of a sudden we come up to this man named Abraham who becomes Abraham. And God makes a, an outstanding promise to him. He says that, 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 that your name is going to be great. I'm going to make a great nation. And all the nations of the world are going to be blessed through you. Which was an astounding promise given the fact that Abraham had no children and he was old and his wife was old and barren. And, and they, there's no way we could have children and be, I could be the father of this great nation and all the nations of the world be blessed. But regardless of that, against all hope, Abraham believed God, and by faith we see, he was counted righteous before God. And he made a covenant with God. God made a covenant with him. And then we follow this family of Abraham down through the centuries. Very early on, a famine took place, and the family had to move to Egypt. By this time, there's a couple of generations removed from Abraham go to Egypt. You remember they're enslaved ultimately. But God, because of his promise to them, delivered them. And then he brings them and gives them a law. And from that law would come God's grace to them. That they would be his people. He would be their God. He told them how they were to live with, with him. And he said, if you sin against me, here's a provision. Here's a way that will enable you to stay cleansed before me. This atonement. And it was a shadow of what was to come. But it was sufficient at the moment for them. But yet, sin was so in them, they continued to sin. The nation itself split into two. God brought prophets to each nation, each the northern kingdom, the southern kingdom of Israel, told them to repent. They wouldn't. 
The northern kingdom first was destroyed. The second kingdom, the southern kingdom later destroyed, exiled. And that's where we find ourselves in the story here with Ezekiel. And we've been through Ezekiel. We know the, the situation. And now God brings Ezekiel to this place, this field, it appears, this vision that he's seeing. And it's as if there was a great army once there that, that, that died in battle. And they just simply died and, 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 and the bodies stayed in the place in which they died and time happened and the bodies deteriorated and all that was left was a field of bones. And God comes to Ezekiel and he says, can these bones live? Now, I, I think when God asks questions like that, we have to consider them rather trick questions. Because on the one hand, Ezekiel's looking at those bones going, no way, but God asked me this question. And in one of the smarter diplomatic moves of a prophet, he turned to God and said, only you know. Because you see, God is the giver of life. God is the one who has authority over life and death. And Ezekiel would know that. He'd say, you know whether these are, from my opinion, if it's left up to me, these are bones or bones. But perhaps, God, there's something something that you know. And so, notice then what the Lord tells him in verse 4. Then he said to me, prophesy over these bones and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, Behold, I'll cause breath to enter you and you shall live. And I will lay sinews upon you and, and cause flesh to come upon you and cover you with skin and put breath in you and you shall live and you shall know that I am the Lord. And so verse 7, then Ezekiel prophesies in the midst of this vision what he's commanded to prophesy, which is essentially live. Would you feel rather foolish in the midst of all these bones? Disconnected bones. They're not even in the right place. And walk around going, live, 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 live. But that's what he's doing here. He's saying, live. And then all of a sudden he begins to hear in his vision this rattling. And these bones start coming together. I'd be a little freaky. These bones start coming together. Flesh comes on these bones. And it may well be that at that moment in time, He's beginning to think, well, that's why God said man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. That's life. Why Moses would say these words I speak to you and write to you are not idle words. These words are your life. Why David would sing the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. It's, there's, there's life here. And when God's word is spoken, there's, there's life. But, but notice then in verse 8, and he says, and I looked... And behold, there were sinews on them, and flesh had come upon them, and skin had covered them. But there was no breath in them. Picture that. These bodies now, from the bones, but no breath in them. Verse 9. Then he said to me, prophesy to the breath. Not to the people, but to the breath. He's saying, speak to the breath. There's, There's breath out there. Speak to the breath. Prophesy, son of man, and say to the breath, Thus says the Lord God, Come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me. And the breath came into them, and they lived and stood on their feet, an exceedingly great army. Now in the Hebrew language, this isn't fancy, and you can find this yourself, the word for breath, the word for wind, and the word for spirit is all the same. It's the word ruach. It means breath. It means wind. You could use it in a, in, a, in a story telling about how a great tornado came through and the wind blew and, and all the trees fell. You could, ruach. But when you're also speaking of the Spirit of God, you would use the same word as well. Because that word is a word picture. J.I. Packer puts it like this. 
says the picture is of air made to move vigorously, even violently. And the thought that the picture expresses is of energy let loose, executive force invading, power and exercise, life demonstrated by activity. There's something happening. There's great power in this. Wind is extremely powerful. Obviously, we know that in Kansas. And he says, this is the wind of the Spirit. This is the breath of the Spirit. And it's so powerful, this move of the Spirit, that it actually brings breath. It actually brings life. And, and, and Ezekiel stood and, 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 and marveled at all of this. Because you see, that first and foremost was a picture of Israel of his day. Because they were, they were dry bones. On the one hand, they weren't living in the presence of God because they weren't in Jerusalem. Uh, locationally, they were separate from the presence of God. In order to be back in the presence of God in those days, in the richness and fullness of it, they needed to be in Jerusalem. And so they were separated from that. So there's this word, yes, you're going to be restored. Something's going to happen. But, but it was more than that. Because we know that it wasn't just a locational issue. It was a spiritual issue. That though, as Isaiah the prophet would say, their, their, their lips honor God, their hearts were far, far from Him. And we remember just a couple of chapters ago when, when Jerusalem was destroyed and they learned of it. It humbled them and they, they went to Ezekiel to hear the word of God, but they still missed it. Because their hearts weren't right. They were still filled with pride. And so they still missed the word of God. They, they still didn't get it. It was a, a spiritual problem. And so we realize there's more to this than just this locational move back to Jerusalem. There's something that, this is, that God is saying to them spiritually may well take place. This spirit of God will move upon them. And Joel had talked about it, obviously, very deliberately in his prophetic word. For instance, in Joel chapter 2 and verse 28. He says that it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams and your young men shall see visions. Uh, even, on, even on the male and female servants in those days I will pour out my spirit. And I will show wonders in the heavens and on the earth, blood and fire and columns of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem there shall be those who escape, as the Lord has said. And among the survivors shall be those whom the Lord calls. And so there's this expectation, you see. That the Spirit of God is going to come in a great and powerful way and bring life and bring the people right into, into the presence of God. And we know that at least some of these who were exiled were restored back to Jerusalem. A day would come when miraculously the political scene would change and, and they would be uh, enabled to go back. And the temple would rebuilt, be rebuilt, the walls around it would be rebuilt and Ezra the prophet would be there. And Ezra the prophet did these very two things. He prayed that as he prophesied to the breath, he prayed that the Spirit of God would come and bring conviction to the people that they would confess their sins. And then he taught them and he preached the word of God to them. And you know what happened? There was a revival right there. That the people in Israel confessed their sins and repented of their sins. So much so that, that they had married women of, who weren't Israelites. 
And their repentance was such that even at that moment in time, they sent those wives back because they wanted to be pure before God. But still, it didn't seem to take on the drama that we read in Ezekiel 37. It didn't seem to have that kind of impact because it didn't seem like the Spirit of God was poured out as Joel had said. But in the progression, in the history of our redemption, we we see things start to happen in the context of this great, powerful Holy Spirit. There was a woman, and it was said upon her came this Holy Spirit, and she conceived. And then there was an announcement by this one to say, my cousin who's now here, he will come and he will baptize with the Holy Spirit, in the Holy Spirit, and with fire. And when he himself was baptized, the Holy Spirit was poured out, came upon him, and everybody knew it because it came visibly in the form of a dove, the Spirit of God upon him. And everywhere he went and everything he touched, life seemed to appear. When he confronted those who were possessed by demons, he would cast them out and say, when I cast out these demons, the very power of God, the very kingdom of God has come upon you. And bells and whistles should have been going off in their heads, going, yes, Ezekiel 37. I don't know what the number was then. This is it. This is the dry bones coming to life. This is the corpses coming alive. Yes, this is it. The Holy Spirit is now here and among us the kingdom, the power of God is right here among us. It came probably, at least at that point in the history of redemption, to its, its, its highest moment when Jesus' friend died and he waited a few days till he was good and dead so that the glory of God might be known. And he goes to the tomb of his friend Lazarus and he prays. It's as if he prophesies to the wind the Spirit of God to come and bring life. And then he says the, the words, the powerful words, the words attended by the Holy Spirit, Lazarus, come forth. And he did. He did. I, I never get over that. Every, every year when I read that a couple of times in my Bible reading, I just stop there and I go, I haven't seen that. That's amazing. He did. And then a day came when Jesus was about to be crucified. And he met with his disciples and he began to tell them about this Holy Spirit who would come, the very power of God, who would be among you, who would be with you, and who would be in you. And he said, now go to Jerusalem and wait there and the Spirit will come upon you. And they did, and he did. In fact, on that day of Pentecost, you can read it in Acts chapter 2, on that day of Pentecost, when the Spirit of God came upon the disciples of Jesus, it was, it was, it was miraculous. Because there were people in that court who had, uh, had come from all different places. And they began to hear the disciples speak in, their, in languages they could understand, in their own home language. And what they were speaking were the wondrous works of God, the greatness of God. And then Peter began to preach. He says, What's, what just happened here is what Joel said was going to happen. Bells and whistles again. The Spirit of God, we should be expecting to hear the rattling of bones. So, the souls of people being knit back together and life being put right in them by the Spirit of God. And they did on that day, 3,000 of them. Life was given. And as we walk our way through the book of Acts, we walk our way through the history of the church, we see over and over again, when the Word of God is accompanied by the Spirit of God, bones come together. And life, spiritual life, comes into people. 
Because you see, this is our very story. This is our story as Christians. This is our life. This is the picture of us. Jesus said he came into the world to save and that he was the light of the world that men loved darkness more than light because their deeds were evil. Jesus said if you sin, you're a slave to sin. The Apostle Paul writes that the, the mind of the natural person, the one without the Spirit of God, who isn't born again, who isn't a believer in Christ, that mind is hostile towards God. But the one whose mind is upon the Spirit of God, and of course is friendly towards God, the one who embraces God. And he said, if you belong to God, the Spirit of God lives in you. He's done that. He's done that work. Because you see, what's necessary in us because of the, the sin that exists in us, that is the Apostle Paul, you were probably listening, I assume, to my call to worship out of Ephesians chapter 2. It were dead in our trespasses and sins. Dry bones. Can these bones live? Yes. How? When the word of God accompanied by the spirit of God comes and we're born again by water of cleansing and the spirit, the Holy Spirit, the power of the spirit upon us. You see, if you're a Christian, chapter 37 in Ezekiel is your life. That happened to you. Spiritually. The word of God came to you and you were given life. The word of God came to you in the power of the Spirit and you were given life. It's that miraculous. And you raised up as part of this vast, great army of God. And you see, if you're an unbeliever, this is what must happen to you. Because you see, the evidence that we have life, spiritual life, is repentance and faith. The evidence that the Spirit of God has come upon us is that first and foremost we begin to see the holiness of God. We see the greatness of God. And then we begin to see ourselves in light of that. And then our sin is revealed to us. And we realize I've, I've been created to glorify Him, yet I've fallen short of His great glory. And I'm hopeless and I'm helpless. Who can save me? And then the Spirit of God shows us Jesus. He said, look at him. He's your Savior. He's taken your sin. He's lived your life so that you might have life. Trust in him. Turn away from your old life. It's him. And you see, when we do that, that's evidence that the Spirit of God has blown out upon us. And this great life has come into us. The very breath, the very life of God. I must say to you, as just in my own profession and life, every Sunday I, I think these kinds of thoughts. I look at you and say, can these bones live? Because of my word and spirit. Preach this word. I'll attend it with my spirit. And you'll see life. In our home, as our children were little, and we would look at them and we would think, can these bones live? And God would say, yes, yes. Give them my word and prophesy to the breath. Pray that the Spirit of God would come and change their hearts. Don't be bashful about that. Pray, plead with the Spirit of God to come and change their lives. 
the context of, of, of your families, in the context of your offices, when you're walking around, wherever you work tomorrow, if you're in school, in the dorm, in the fraternity, the sorority, walk on and look at people and, and say, can these bones live? And hear God say, yes, yes, they can live. Give them my word. Pray that the Spirit of God comes upon them. That's their only hope. As I, as I look at this neighborhood coming up around us, I, I look at these bones live. I look at my own neighborhood. Can these bones live? We talked with the Mercy team this week about, about targeting a neighborhood in Norris, which we, we can go and, 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 and minister in that context. And we think about that community. We ask, can these bones live? And the answer is, yes, they can live. The power of God and the word of God comes upon them. They can live. If not, they'll simply always be dry bones. There's a second point I want to make. I wasn't going to make this because I wasn't sure I could make it from this text. It's true, but I wasn't sure I could make it from this text until I found, uh, I wanted to find someone else who had the same thinking I did, and so I did. I found an old dead guy. He was a great old dead guy name. Ebenezer Erskine. If you're going to be an old dead guy, that would be the name to have. Ebenezer Erskine. Preached a sermon in March of 1750. I dug a bit. 1750 in March, so it's almost on its anniversary date of preaching. And the title of the sermon is The Wind of the Holy Ghost Blows Upon the Dry Bones in the Valley of Vision. That's good. The Wind of the Holy Ghost Blows Upon the Dry Bones in the Valley of Vision. And he made the point that I've just made, is that is that when people are dead in trespasses and sins, the only hope they have is a work of God. It's nothing we can bring to the table. It's got to be God's work, but he works through his word, accompanied by his sovereignly given Holy Spirit to bring life, and that's our hope. But then he makes this second point, and he makes it to Christians. He makes it to Christians who are feeling rather half-dead. And he says, the Spirit of God and the Word of God is needed for you too to revive your soul. Here's how he says it. He says, there is partial death incident to believers. Now, I'm not really quite fond of that little phrase, partial death, because we're alive if we're believers, but his point is, as sometimes at the end of the day you can hit the bed feeling half-dead, well, in our spiritual lives, there are times when we feel half-dead too. Anybody's walked with Christ for a while, you know there are times you don't feel spiritually fervent. You don't feel your faith to be strong. It's not simply a backslidden state, although that would be true, that old-fashioned word that we use for people who have made a profession of faith but don't appear to be walking with Christ. But, but there are times in our lives when we simply feel unwarmed by the gospel when our faith does seem weak, when our affections for Christ and others may feel low. And that, that's what he means by this. He says there is a partial death incident to believers whom God has raised out of the grave of an unrenewed state and whose souls he has implanted a principle of spiritual life, that is, they're Christians. And this partial death incident to believers can... Here's his list. In a manifest decay of spiritual principles and habits, meaning... That you're just not about Bible reading like you used to be. 
And you're just not about prayer like you used to be. Uh, you're just not about fellowship in the body of Christ like you used to be. You're, you're not about sharing your faith like you used to be. You're not about being compassionate to the poor like you used to be. You're not looking at people to help them as you used to be. Those spiritual principles that accompany a Christian, they're just not there like they used to be. And then second, he said, in, abating of, in the abating of their wanted life and vigor and activity in the way and the work of the Lord, their faith, their hope, their love and other graces are in all a fainting and languishing condition. That is, your faith is just not strong like it once was. The love that you have, the kindness that you're showing, the compassion, the sacrifice for Christ that you were once willing to make seems now to be too much. And all these, he says, lie dormant in the soul like the life of the tree that lies hidden in its root without fruit or blossoms during the winter season. He said, you look, if a vibrant Christian is a tree in the spring, you're a tree in the winter. That's what you look like. The candle of his conversion may burn dimly or with very imperfect light. The leaves of his profession may in a great measure be withered. The flame of his affections, his love, his zeal, his desire may, like that of a great fire, be reduced to a few coals and cinders. There may be a great intermission or formality in the discharge of commanded duty. It's, I'm doing it because I'm a Christian, but there's no joy. I'll come to worship because I always do, and I know if I don't, someone's going to think poorly of me. So I'll go. The mind which once with delight and admiration could meditate upon God and Christ and the covenant and the things that are above may come to lose its relish for these things and to dote upon the transitory fading vanities of a present world that is the deceitfulness of riches and the worries of the world are beginning to choke out that word that's in you. The common gifts of the spirit through carnal ease and defective employment may be in a great measure blasted and which is worst of all the saving graces and the fruits of the spirit may come to be woefully impaired as their former degrees and actings. And then he says this. But now this partial death of believers, again, is twofold. There is a deadness which is felt by God's people and a deadness which is not felt. And he quotes Judges saying, The Lord was departed from Samson and he wist not, which means he didn't know it. You remember the story. Delilah tricked him. His hair was cut off. He jumped up and he was going to go out and kill. But he couldn't because the Lord wasn't with him. But he didn't know it. That's the dangerous one. But then he goes on about this deadness which is left when God's people have a sense of their deadness and are lamenting in it and it is evidence of spiritual life or some revival. When the Lord's people are beginning to cry out with the church, will you not revive us again? that your people may rejoice in you. Now that deadness. Because we're lamenting over it and we understand it and see it. There's great hope there. And the hope there is the same hope that first brought you life. The hope that first brought you life was God's word accompanied by His Spirit. Remember the church in Ephesus that Jesus speaks about in Revelation in chapter 2. They had lost their first love. And the word that Jesus gives them is, go back to the first things, go back to the beginning, go back doing what you did in the very beginning, which was, listen to this word and pray that the breath of God's Spirit will accompany it and revive your soul. The law of the Lord is perfect, 
reviving the soul. And that's true for us as well. One of the last things that Mr. Erskine said in his sermon about when this reviving can best work in your life. Oh, he mentioned it can work best in your quiet time. It can work best in your worship. Don't worry about that, baby. Babies are fine. That's what's called church noise. It just happens. It's good. It's good. It's good. That's, see, see that's, here's the illustration from that. This is what God is teaching us through the baby. That when a baby is alive, you know it. How do you know it? Well, there are certain evidences. You, you know, you feel their bottom and you go, ah, this baby's alive. You hear them cry, ah, this baby's alive. When you see a person and you want to know if they're spiritually alive, ask them what they believe about Jesus. And if they know him and they've trusted him, they're alive. That's the evidence, repentance and faith in Christ. And Erskine says if you're reviving your soul, there are a number of ways that can happen. It can happen in worship. It happens in fellowship. It happens as you, in your quiet times, you study the scripture. It happens in your prayer time at home. It happens in all those different venues. But he also said it can happen on communion days. Because he said communion days are sometimes days of sweet influences. Now that's an old dead guide's way of saying communion days are sometimes days when the power of the Holy Spirit blows right through us. And I began to think about that as I was reading that sermon this week. It, by the way, would take about an hour and a half to preach, so be grateful. I began to think about that. Why is it? Because it is true. I know it to be true in my own life. I know it to be true. There are times on communion Sundays when my soul is refreshed like no other Sunday. And I, I don't believe in superstition. I'm not superstitious. I don't believe in magic. I don't believe that, that you know, hocus pocus. But, but there's something about the sacrament that Jesus gave to us in this way that, that blesses us and revives our soul. Why? And I came to the conclusion because here before us is the Word. The very Word of God. You remember on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and, and after giving thanks, he broke it. And he gave it to his disciples and he said... This is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. That is, think about, think about me, the very word of God. And then he took the cup and after giving thanks, he gave this to his disciples as well and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood shed for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this in remembrance of me. That is, think about me, the very word of God. Think about me when you come. Concentrate, focus your attention upon me and I'll be here. And I'll meet you here. The very word of God. And we pray, we pray that God's spirit would come. The very spirit of Christ would come and attend this very common, ordinary stuff. Attend it in such a way that the focus of our attention would be on Christ. And you see, when that begins to happen, we begin to see God in all of His holiness. And we see the holiness of God. And then we see our unholiness of sin. And then we see Jesus. There's a great line in a hymn that I like to sing. And it's the line is, I know my sin and all its greatness. But 
also him who sets me free. See, we see both of those when we hear the word and the spirit attends it and warms our hearts to it. And he says, by my word and by my spirit comes life. And by my word and my spirit restores and renews your soul. And that's why it works. If by faith we focus our attention upon Christ. Let's pray. Father in heaven, it is for me with great expectation that I wait before you at this table. And I pray that you would take this bread and this juice and it will always be bread and juice. But Father, I pray that you'll take it and you'll cause it to enable me to think upon Christ. And Holy Spirit, I pray that you would come and attend these thoughts in such a way that you would warm my heart, warm our hearts towards him. And we would see that we were once dry bones, corpses. And yet, this word came to us and said, live. And your spirit attended that word and gave us breath, gave us spiritual life. And that's why we know Jesus. That's why we believe. That's why we're walking with you. And I pray that you would also, by your word and spirit, attend any hearts even now that are not warm to you, that don't know you, and that you would take out a heart of stone, put in a heart of flesh, put your spirit within them. They might walk, believe. Father, for those of us who are spiritually lethargic, seems like the joy of our salvation is gone. It seems like the burdens upon us are so great that we can't find God in the midst of them. Father, I pray that you would come and bring life. Holy Spirit, please just blow through this place in our hearts. For those who are in sin, Father, I pray that you would enable us to confess that sin and to receive the forgiveness the, the blood of Jesus brings that we might be renewed in our spirits and warmed in our affections towards you that we may walk with you. Father, do that work even now. Spirit, we pray, come and attend this word and we might see Jesus and fellowship with him by faith. In Jesus' name, amen. I remind you that this table